Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. If you're new here, if this is the first time you're listening, then double welcome. Had quite a few new listeners in the last couple of weeks. So hello, if you're new. There's a pretty big archive of shows for you to work your way through if you're a newcomer. So um, yeah, I think they're all pretty good. I'm pretty uh, pretty happy with the general standards of episodes that we've managed to come up with over the last eight months or so. So yeah, definitely worth doing that if you're a newcomer. And um, if you're not, if you're a regular listener, then thanks for sticking with us. This week on the show, we've got a absolute classic, in my opinion. It's exactly the kind of conversation that I wanted to be having when I started the podcast. We have Patrice Baumel on the show. Now he is of course, the former resident of Trow in Amsterdam, which is just a legendary club of, I guess, the 2000s and early 2010s. And he has since then kind of reinvented himself as a purveyor of just huge club tracks. So he's very much a fixture on the kind of afterlife section of the dance scene, I guess. He's kind of big trancey but pretty groovy bangers that he comes out with really just made him quite a big deal in that area 
of the scene. But the biggest reason I wanted to get him on really was the fact that he's such a individual thinker as much as anything else. Like he sort of hints on his Twitter feed that he has opinions which definitely differ from the kind of opinions you're supposed to have. And we've talked about this idea of like, you know, groupthink in the dance scene and having to conform to various points of view in public sense. And Patrice is someone who really doesn't do that, but he very rarely gets properly grilled on it. So I definitely get into all of that with him during the course of this conversation. And it was super, super interesting to be able to get to do so because he really is someone who thinks about stuff and comes to conclusions which are not the ones that, you know, are expected of someone in his position. So it's awesome to be able to really dig into that stuff. And I think you're going to enjoy the result of it, which is this episode. Now, if you wanted to support us in what we're doing here, you can do so on Patreon patreon.com slash official. There's a whole bunch of bonus content that goes up there every week from exclusive mixes, exclusive podcasts, including one I did last week in which I review the Spotify top 10, global top 10. That was fun. I'm going to be doing that again. And on the musicality tier, you basically get on the Hot Flush promo list. So that's a pretty good value way of supporting us here. If you can't or don't want to do that, that's fine. You can hit the review or rating button wherever you're listening to this. Hit the five-star one, preferably. That'd be good. And follow the Spotify playlist, of which there was a link in the show notes. If you've got anything to say, then join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And let's just jump to the conversation. Without further delay, here is Patrice Balmel. Patrice Bamel, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, it's been a busy summer and I'm kind of looking forward to the quiet or fall period ahead. Yeah. You've been traveling around different continents, I believe. Yes. I mean, a, a lot of the summer, uh, a lot of the summer uh, gigs were in, in Europe. I mean, a lot of the island shows, Ibiza, Mykonos, which are usually filling up the midweeks. Um, but that sprinkled with a couple of uh, uh, shows in Asia and in, uh, in, in America as well. Not, nothing out of the ordinary. It's just a lot of festival shows. And uh, this culminated uh, in Burning Man last week. I'm just back from that. Really? Okay, how was that? I've never been to Burning Man. And I'm very interested yeah. in, in what it's like now. Because, I mean... I was reading about it the other day, actually, in relation to how it started in the first place. And I mean, obviously now it's become this huge kind of almost like Instagram event. So tell me what it was like. Well, um, you ask 10 different people what Burning Man is like and you'll get 10 different answers because everybody can design Burning Man to be the experience that they want it to be. If you just want to go there to party, uh, then there's a party waiting for you 24-7. But uh, if you want to use it as a, a more introspective journey, let's say you want to spend some time alone, you want to examine how you function in a, in a harsher environment, how you function out there in the desert, or uh, how does your ego work uh, around strangers, uh, then, uh, and then, then Burning Man also is a place uh, to give you that experience. The problem uh, of the perception of Burning Man is that p- 
people who don't go there, all they see is um, the, the the Instagram version of it. Yeah, yeah, right. Which exactly. mostly re- re- revolves around sexy outfits and uh, and 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 the the, <laughs> the art cars, the famous art cars like Robot Heart and the Mayan Warrior. Uh, basically, those parties, the flashy moments. But to me, that is at best five percent of the experience that Burning Man has to offer. So what you don't get to see is just the intimate encounters with total strangers in the middle of nowhere, where out of nowhere you just start a conversation and it becomes a really heartfelt, heartwarming encounter. Or what you don't see is how you go from camp to camp and then you just meet meet strangers, they invite you in and uh, then the hospitality that you experience, they offer you drinks and... Uh, they offer you a massage. <laughs> There's so many things you, you can go visit. You can spend the whole week just doing workshops or you can. Um, so what I did is I spent a lot of the time at Burning Man just inside my camp because I wanted to uh, feel what it's like to just be serving uh, a, a tight knit community, become a community member uh, and contribute with something other than just my DJ sets. I, I, I didn't want it to feel like a work trip, but I wanted, uh, you know, I wanted to feel what it's like to, you know, do, do some physical labor, to do some bonding with, uh, with, with strangers, to, you know, just be part of something bigger than just myself. And uh, on that front, Burning Man totally delivered. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I, I think the vast majority of people who are kind of looking at it from the outside, as you say, like focus on the, well, in, inevitably focus on like the visual representations of the festival outside, which are largely, you know, as as you described. But I mean, like the community aspect of it actually is, you know, it's something that I was I was definitely aware was part of the thing. I mean, it's supposed to be like a like a temporary. Um, it's like a temporary community zone, right? Actually, how, how do they refer to it? It's a Dadaist temporary autonomous zone in, in the desert. But I mean, it's it's super interesting to me that that's what you focused on. Because actually, actually, my first question to you was going to be about your like ability to sort of, I guess, project yourself into the world like in a fairly unfiltered kind of a way, right? And I'm just thinking to myself as I ask this question about whether those two things interact with each other or not. But I mean, yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit more about the uh, the community aspect of, of the Burning Man thing. Well, I think uh, Burning Man is an experiment. What happens if you remove uh, the act of selling from society? What 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 happens if the incentive of making money is removed from uh, uh, from uh, social activity? And it's really quite beautiful because uh, um, uh, it brings up the generosity in people. It brings up the creativity because you you create some art or you create anything you want in the desert. It doesn't have to sell, so it doesn't have to uh, it doesn't have to fulfill a, f- a primary function of uh, uh, being a product. It can just be something that delights people. Uh, that's amusing. That's uh, that's shocking. That is thought provoking. So basically, you unleash uh, uh, human creativity from the shackles of uh, commercial pressure, 
And uh, uh, for me, it's always astonishing to see uh, what human beings are capable of. Like it takes two weeks to set up uh, a city of 80,000 people. And the stuff, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just astounding. Um, what human creativity is capable of is uh, when you stand there in the middle of the night on the playa, which is basically the open desert uh, that is being encircled by the, by, by the city. Uh, and you look around you and you see the sounds, uh, you see all the sights, the lasers, the, the, the beautiful art cars, the, the installations, uh, the, the, the fireworks, uh, just the mayhem and, uh, and, and, and just completely unregulated creativity. It, uh, it's kind of, you know, it warms my heart because it, it tells me, wow, uh, we are destined and we're capable of being so much more than just, uh, just worker bees and, uh, and, and, and rats in a hamster wheel, you know, like, uh, uh, we are, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's so much beauty to be seen and, uh, uh and, and we're, I mean, it gives, basically it gives me hope in, 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 in mankind. In our regular lives, we're often reduced to performing in a really certain direction, you know. Uh, how can we gather more resources for ourselves? How can we become more, vis like in the art world or in the music world, it's like, how can we market ourselves? How can we get more gigs? How can we become more famous? Uh, uh, it's... Uh, it's such a narrow path that we're forced on. Uh, basically, how can we secure survival? Uh, whereas out there, uh, that spectrum broadens so much and it brings out so much good in people. And it also brings out so much, you know, it breaks people as well. Because uh, uh, most people at some point of the burn are lost in some way and uh, they, hit the, they hit a wall the playa breaks you down and then it rebuilds you in a better way, which I think is probably one of the most beautiful aspects of, uh, of the burn, that uh, it changes people. Okay, that term unregulated creativity is something that I want to return to, so I'm just going to stick a pin in that. But let me, let me ask you uh, the question I was going to ask you at the top, which was that your Twitter bio just says no fear and... I get the impression from your the way you the way you express yourself in interviews and the kind of things that you highlight on Twitter and other social media platforms. Well, my question was going to be like, do you sense yourself at all in terms of how you express your opinions publicly? Yes, um, I'm. At least I think that I'm very aware of what I'm expressing. It's not it's, it's not randomness. So uh, what I'm trying to the message that i'm trying to send out is to encourage people to uh, think for themselves uh, to you know not outsource their thinking to any sort of ideology or or party or god knows science or whatever a quasi religion uh, we're uh, uh, we're following at the moment as a, as a herd but to really you know to, to, to allow themselves to be uh, uh, autonomous individual thinkers and also autonomous individual feelers to, to, to use their intuition and to, uh, to, to, to be individuals and to be human beings and not just to be uh, 
uh, a cog in a in a massive cogwheel without any influence and just to just to just to follow uh, uh, to follow the masses and to uh, and to follow the what's being widely referred to as the current thing, you know, where uh, we're basically constantly being told what to think about. And, you know, we're basically, uh, uh, I, I want people to really think for themselves and not just say, okay, today we're all going to worry about Ukraine. And yesterday we're all worried about Black Lives Matter. And before that we worried about transgender rights. And before that, it was something else. Maybe the elections in the United States or whatever. Find your own path. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Form your own opinions. Uh, and, uh, uh, and also uh, be a human being. Uh, don't just tr go out there, be a crusader for someone else's, uh, for someone else's war. And, uh, uh, but also listen accept that there is a plurality of, uh, of opinions out there that the vast majority of people will not agree with you on the vast majority of issues and to be okay with that. I mean, absolutely. And I think there's like, there is just a kind of shocking amount of groupthink that, that goes on and, and like just yes. standing against just the, the combination of the combination of, of positions that one is expected to take, I think. I mean, particularly, uh, yes. I mean, as a musician, I think this, this is a particularly sort of prevalent area of society to be involved in that, that, that has these pressures. I mean, you, you mentioned the, um, the science area of this, and I'm, no doubt you're referring to the pandemic and all the stuff that went along with that. But I mean, there are other, other things too, which you also just, just referred to, any one of which can be an extremely tricky area to to articulate an opinion which isn't the opinion of the narrative if you if you if you catch my drift so but exactly. I mean, and, yes, and, absolutely. And, and that's kind of what i was getting at with my original question so i mean you you do like hint at having views which do differ pretty regularly so have you had much blowback on any position you've taken publicly initially a lot uh, but then I also realized uh, part of the problem was my way of communicating it because I just contributed to the noise by being uh, uh, another antagonistic element telling other people uh, that they're wrong and that I'm right and I think the moment I stepped down from that and tried to communicate my viewpoints in a more forgiving, uh, subtle way and uh, allowing people, giving giving people to uh, uh, also the, the the space and respect to, uh, to 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 disagree with me without being judged. Uh, that moment uh, really uh, changed that, uh, uh, that 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 blowback uh, momentum. So uh, I feel that uh, um, through kindness, maybe my words have lost some of its impact but at the same time I've, i also i also feel that i'm no longer being part of uh, um, part of the problem that creates division because i think it's far more important to uh, overcome uh, the divisiveness that uh, our society is experiencing in so many different ways uh, than it is to agree on everything 
you know i think it's the the, the first step for us to as a society to truly heal is to accept each other's viewpoint and accept each other's differences and also uh refocus on what um brings us together you know so for instance uh I'll take an issue, let's say, like abortion rights. And I look at it from two different angles. Uh, let's say uh, I'm looking at it from uh, the, the pro-choice angle. And what do I see? I see people who are trying to protect life. They're trying to protect the mother's life. Uh, often an unwanted mother, you know, if a 14-year-old girl becomes pregnant through being raped... That's uh, uh, that is uh, an unwanted pregnancy, and uh, uh, and and that potentially could ruin her life. And I completely understand uh, the good motive behind wanting to protect that person. And then I turn this around and I look at uh, 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 the, the the pro-life faction that is against abortion, and they're looking at uh, protecting life as well. In this case, the unborn life. Uh, because, of course, yeah, if there's a baby in your belly and it's kicking and it's reacting to music and whatever, it's difficult to deny that that's not a life. And ending a life, of course, it's, it, can, it, can be seen as, uh, it can be seen as murder. And even though I might not agree with that, I can understand how you could come to that conclusion. I mean, it's, it's, uh, this, let, me, let me just interrupt you there and say that um, yeah. my, my understanding of this issue was just transformed by a, by a Louis C.K. bit, actually, in which he basically said exactly what you've just said, which uh-huh. he said, like, you can understand the pro-life lobby when you consider that their position is saying, like, you shouldn't murder babies. Yeah. And as, as soon as that, as soon as you understand that from their perspective, it just makes complete sense, right? I mean, not that I, I don't take that position, but I can completely understand that if that's, yes. if that's what's in your head, then of course you'd think that. Of course you'd be against it. Exactly. And, you know, small dif- differences in definition, what do you define as life, can lead to completely different outcomes. And yet both sides of the argument might still be completely, uh, you, know, you know, might be still good people. And probably are. I'm not one of those uh, uh, people who, who thinks that most human beings are, are, are bad or anything. No, on the contrary. And I mean, you, you've done your fair share of travel around the world. You know that people everywhere are fundamentally good and want fundamentally similar things out of life. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, the, the vast majority of people, well, actually, no, without, without even putting it like that, I think people are largely a product of their surroundings. Absolutely, you know, yes. The way the adults behave. And it's the same as the way kids behave. So if, an, if there is an underlying like direction of travel to your society, then the chances are you will be caught up with that current in some respect or to some degree, right? And that largely explains why, you know, people go along with, you know, regimes that get into power, which do, you know, bad stuff, unambiguously bad stuff, like oftentimes with the with the blessing of the population, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, they're so caught up in the narrative and, and, and they're driven by hope of change for the better. And, and of course, we are human beings, we're also easy to deceive. And uh, um, that deception happens on a, on a, you know, continuously. We are simply not armed well enough to see that, uh, to detect that early. Some people are, but most are not. 
most people are in a way are, you know, gullible and, you know, they uh, are taken advantage of so easily. Well, I think interacting on interacting in the form of social media really exacerbates that tendency. So I think if you're if you're purely interacting within these, well, but first of all, behind the screen, so you can't see someone's face, I think is extremely significant. But then just in these kind of like bite-sized snippets without the opportunity to clarify or yeah. or could push, give yeah. the back and forth with, you know, which in a way which isn't in that sort of immediately adversarial way, you know, I think it just exacerbates all that stuff. Uh, totally. And, and also it, it, social media has a way of... Uh, uh, triggering a person's lizard brain where they're really just reacting, you know, where, where, where there, there isn't this moment of uh, reflection and thinking and how, how does this make me feel and do I really want to react? No, they immediately react. So uh, it's, it's, it's really a bunch of instinctive animalistic reactions uh, colliding with each other. That's a discussion in, uh, on social media. Yeah, absolutely. So just to return to that term that you used when describing Burning Man, this unregulated creativity. I mean, the term unregulated really kind of chimes with the, uh, the the kind of vibe of a lot of your your tweets and this kind of stuff that seems to kind of like ring your bell intellectually, right? And libertarian, obviously, is a term which carries a little bit of baggage now. And I suppose what I really mean is liberal in the European sense of the word. So, I mean, to, to what extent am I right in thinking that? And then and maybe let's dig into some specifics. Well, liberal in the way of freedom-loving, because liberal comes from liberty. Yeah. Uh, yes, I am fr- I'm f- freedom-loving, but I would not uh, see myself as someone who uh, prescribes to a certain doctrine. So let's say it's not like just because I like liberty, does that mean that I uh, uh, endorse everything that, uh, you know, libertarian figureheads promote. I'm, I'm probably not, you know. I, I, I want to reserve the freedom to uh, pick and choose issues from every side of the argument. And sometimes one side is right and one side is the other side is right. And, uh, you know, but the, for me, the, the basic principle is something that I've thought about a lot during the pandemic is that Freedom to me is the most important good there is. It's more important than love. Freedom is everything to me. And how do you define freedom, though, in in a kind of broad sense? Um, To have at any given moment to have a choice. And also to not not only to have a choice, but also to be aware of that choice and to be able to make that choice in an intelligible way. So... uh, to exercise freedom as a human being, especially in a, in a democracy, it, it, it requires for the human being to, uh, to, be, to be self-aware, uh, to be uh, uh, to some degree also uh, master of uh, his or her own emotions. Uh, so, so to have the emotional maturity of an adult and also to have... Uh, the, the education to make uh, to make uh, intelligible choices. So um, yes, uh, f- freedom for me is uh, not only to have choices, but also to be able to make good choices. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, like mentioning democracy, like that just got my got my brain wearing because obviously um, I'm I'm from the UK and and very recently we've we've 
experienced the the death of the monarch, the head of state, but the unelected head of state. Yes. <clears throat> and all sorts of questions re- regarding democracy have been kind of like flung up in the air as a result of this. And the other democratic kind of issue that's hung over British society in the last few years is obviously the Brexit vote. And and that also threw up all sorts of mm. democratic issues in terms of yeah, the, the differences between direct democracy and representative democracy. And I'm just thinking, I mean, it, it's, it's such an interesting definition of freedom, actually, because, I mean, choice, freedom of choice in of itself is an arguable concept, right? Because, I mean, there are, there are people who would argue that just free will in of itself is an illusion. <laughs> yes, like Sam Harris. And I wonder where you stand on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm really on the fence about it. I mean, uh, yeah, Sam Harris made a really good argument uh, on, on, on exactly that. If you really think about how much you can control uh, your thoughts, yeah, then you cannot really, they just come up. So in other, other words, it's absolutely possible your whole life is just a chain of already predetermined thoughts, you know? That, uh, that, 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 that basically you're a passenger that lives under the illusion of having a choice. So yes, choice might just be an illusion because ultimately we cannot influence what thought comes up in uh, next in us. And the, the, the resulting action from that is therefore also already predetermined. But um, let's just say uh, the difference between uh, freedom and not freedom is... is not having someone else to tell you what to do. Right. But being able to make that choice on your own, you know. And uh, uh, the ability to always say yes or no. And to not being forced into something involuntarily. You know, that is, that is freedom uh, to me. Let's say on, on, on an everyday level. Uh, what is freedom to me on an everyday level? It is... Uh, to be to be able to determine what my day looks like at any point of the day i get up in the morning and i make the decision am i going to put in four hours of work in the studio or am i going to going out for a walk or am i going to buy a ticket and fly uh, for a quick trip to uh, to new york with my wife or something like that you know um, that is a uh, that is that is a freedom of choice and of course i see this is a luxury. Uh, most people don't have that choice. Uh, for most people, uh, economic reality, uh, the economic realities of life uh, uh, limit uh, their ability to choose what they're going to do next. But my theory is the more freedom a, a person has in their life, the more self-determination and control a person has in, in, in his or her life, the more uh, potential for happiness there is in a life. I always felt the least happy when I felt under the pressure to do something that I didn't want to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the question I was going to ask was, yeah? you, you grew up in the GDR. Am I right in thinking that? That's, that's correct, yes. How much would you say that early experience informs your, your view that you've just uh, described? <laughs> a lot. Right. Uh, I, I'm big, big, 
I think uh, the big advantage for people who have actually lived in a communist system is it afforded them an outside view on the system that we're living in right now. If you've never left that bubble of, let's say, in our case, uh, a modern Western capitalist society, it's much more difficult to define what that society actually is because you don't have to anything you don't have anything to reference it against. It's like asking a person, what does air smell like? Now, if you're an alien and you come on planet Earth and you take off your mask, there's probably going to be a very distinct smell that is different from your own planet. But if you've always lived here, air has no smell because it's the only thing you've ever smelled. You know, and I think it's very similar with, a, with, a, with, a, with an economic system like a, a capitalism. If you've only ever been inside it, You're so unaware of how, uh, for instance, we are constantly being programmed in a certain way or how uh, certain incentives are set to make us act in a certain way. So uh, once you've, but also there's so many things we simply take for granted because uh, we take food for granted. Most of us have never known hunger You know, you go to the third world, it's a different story. Or you um, you go back two generations. I remember my grandparents, they all uh, uh, lived through the Second World War. And all of them knew hunger. And their reluctance to, for instance, throw away food. And them always insisting on us finishing our plates comes from a totally different mindset. Because they they, they know what it's like to not have anything to eat. So... Wasting food to them is something completely different than to us. We throw away half an avocado like this. We don't like that sandwich, bam, chuck it away. There's always going to be more of that. So living outside of a system uh, uh, like capitalism, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it, it gives us just a better, it gives me a better idea of uh, what I'm experiencing right now. And also, yeah, because I, I, in, in communism, one of the things was, I wasn't allowed to travel. My, uh, uh, my, my career choices were extremely limited. My economic outlook was also very limited. There was just no way I was ever going to be, you know, making good money in a communist system. Everybody more or less makes the same money regardless of what work they did, you know? So there was the, the, the differences were small. This was more egalitarian, but you know, everybody was equally poor. So, I appreciate the good things about our society here probably a little bit more than someone who's always lived here. And at the same time, I see uh, the dangers and problems of this society maybe a little bit more clearly than someone who uh, doesn't have that outside view. Yeah, and that makes total sense, right? Okay, so let me ask you, there's a few issues that which come out of this, specific issues that I want to ask you about. So let's just go through these. The first one relating to the pandemic, there was a big groundswell of hostility towards the quote unquote play graves <laughs> during the pandemic. So tell me where you stood on that issue. Um, it's a good question. Um, first of all, for me, it's uh, um, n nobody is forced to go to a party. So, uh, and, and, and I think people are responsible for their own choices. I also think that um, if someone wants to 
protect him or herself from being exposed to the virus, uh, that choice is pretty much there for everybody. You know, yep. they can stay away from family members. They can stay away from uh, um, um, seeing friends and family. They can just order their food in. Uh, they go to the supermarket at a, at a, at a quiet hour. They double mask. Uh, if they believe in, uh, in, 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 in working uh, in vaccinations, they can do that. So the means to protect yourself against uh, this invisible danger are there for nearly everybody. And uh, I, th I, I think they're a personal responsibility. So for me, I made the choice of simply not be, uh, I got, I mean, I got COVID really early on, um, probably March 2020. And after that, I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm not afraid anymore. Natural immunity. I'm going to go on and live my life. Whoever wants to be with me, please do. So for me, the only thing to, uh, that determined whether I was going to play or not was, is it legal? Yeah. I don't want to break any laws. So I respect what local health authorities were saying. And in Mexico, local health authorities were saying, it is okay to party. So I went to Mexico. Same in India. They said, it's okay to party. So I went to India and it was okay. And of course, for whatever reason, uh, there's always people uh, moaning and it is a certain type of people always. Yeah. A lot of them came from the, a lot of them came from the UK. A lot of them were underachieving male artists. <laughs> right. So yeah. That's a, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so that is a pro profile. And, and, and another profile is people who were extremely successful as recording artists who could use the time out to make a, 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 a nice album, uh, get paid 100K in advance, uh, right out in the sunset, no worries in the world. Another group is people who were getting paid in full during the pandemic, who can afford to take that stance. I would love to see all of those people to uh, get everything, every kind of source of income taken away from them being faced with the, the dilemma of having to feed their family and seeing what choices they make then. You know, because if you have a cushy job and the only difference is you don't have to shop at the office, but you get to work at home and you get paid in full, it's easy to point fingers at artists who suddenly have nothing, who still have bills to pay, have to feed a family and, uh, um, and tell them to, to uh, stay at home. Um, so for me, I did not feel any sort of moral responsibility to, towards these people, uh, to, uh, you know, the only responsibility I felt was is to put food on the table at home and to, uh, provide people with, uh, happiness and connection, which I felt was more needed than ever in those days. And I think in hindsight, it, I was, I was, I was proven right because these parties were incredibly important for people. Uh, I've, I've, I've gotten an immensely amount more positive feedback than negative feedback. So that uh, the, the, the plague rave uh, uh, screamers, they were just a vast minority. And, and, and now, fast forward a year, COVID is still there. All the reasons why they didn't want me to party is still there. 
Yet they're now they're also touring out there. They're also spreading the virus. Everybody knows that these vaccines don't keep you from uh, from, from spreading uh, the virus and to, from killing granny, you know, in quotes, in air quotes. So the situation has not changed at all. The only thing that has changed is that we know a little bit more about the virus now than we did then. But it's still there. It can still kill, especially old people. Uh, so... If you're consequent, you should still be at home waiting until this thing is over. If you believe your own playgrave words, play, uh, but no, everybody's out there now. Everybody's traveling. Everybody's traveling without a mask. Uh, so uh, I think uh, um, no regrets. I made the right choice back then. Yeah, I mean, I think that from my observation, like a lot of the pushback was put in terms of well, kind of put through the lens of almost a sort of anti-colonialist sort of perspective, and you know, uh, trying to trying to portray it as the you know, the jurisdictions that were allowing these parties were ones which were you know de- developing economies which had been essentially victimised by colonialism in the past, and it always struck me that the flip side of that was. You know, in in the West, our economies are basically able to borrow and spend their way through the issue, and that absolutely was the was the approach taken by basically every Western economy was just to you know basically print money, not even borrow it, just print money exactly, and yeah, yeah, and yeah. and spend what is required to support the economy. But you know, it's all very well saying, oh yeah, those developing economies were affected by uh, colonialism. But like, if they, if you're just not able to take that approach, which, you know, a developed economy yeah. just isn't able to, you know, to, to do those sorts of, to kind of engage in that kind of financial chicanery to solve a problem, yeah. then, you know, it, it just shows that, you know, it's, it's a one-eyed argument, I would, I would say. Yes, and also uh, to to, to, uh, pick up on that colonialism uh, theme, to be sitting in your cushy home somewhere in in London or Cologne or wherever and to point finger at the Mexican health authorities and say, I know better than you guys from a distance. Isn't that also almost a bit of a colonial arrogance? I mean... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, 100%. Okay, so next question regarding the war in Ukraine. And you've tweeted about this a bit, so I'm fairly sure I know what your answer is going to be. But the the equivalence of Russian artists to the Russian government, that is to say, expecting Russian artists to necessarily be very vocal in their opposition to something which is purely the prerogative of their unelected national government. Where do you stand on that? Look, there's a logical fallacy. Those people demanding from Russian artists uh, to take a public stance against Putin are the same people who uh, put Putin on equal footing with Hitler, basically. Right. So basically, they call Putin an extremely dangerous man. At the same time, they're expecting these artists to put their and their families' lives on the line for a token statement in public, mm-hmm. you know, if what they think about Putin is true, that would be really dangerous. Right. That's that's it, isn't it? Because that's that's the unacknowledged truth of, of the reality. I mean, it's, which is never acknowledged. Yeah. So so for so, so for so for me, that is just an unreasonable demand to 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 make a token statement. 
that does no one any good. I, I, I feel it goes without saying, by default, one should assume that most people are against war. And most people are against war, you know? And uh, uh, I would love to see the receipts from all those people with uh, Ukraine flags in their Twitter profiles. Where were they when Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq were bombed to smithereens by Western forces? Where were they? Were they demanding from uh, American artists to come up with a public statement against their government? No, I mean, we're here, we're here measuring with completely two different uh, yardsticks, you know. And I, I experienced that the whole time. When, when I play in Israel, I got a lot of blowback from, uh, uh, um, um, the, uh, from people. Uh, um, yeah, the BDS movement, right? They're usually pretty vocal. Well, yeah, just from just from just from people not understanding how I could support this regime uh, uh, in in the face of the atrocities that are happening with the Palestinians, mm. and yes, I'm fully aware of these atrocities as well. What I don't agree with is to to uh, to equal the action of a government, which are often completely out of control of the populace, with uh, 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 with its people. I think uh, that music is one of the few forces that I think is stronger than politics. And, uh, and, and, and music has the ability to build bridges. And me going to places like uh, Israel and me going anywhere in the world to play, regardless of what the political situation is, it helps to spread the word. Like, for instance, I go to, I go to, I go to Lebanon I experience what life is there. Then I go to Israel and I can tell my Israeli friends, Jesus, the people in Lebanon are almost the same. They love the same music. It's, just, it's eerily similar how, 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 how similar the dance floor vibe feels, how the food is so similar, so how you're almost brothers. And I tell the people in Lebanon exactly the same thing. I think this is so much better than leaving these two countries next to each other just in the illusion that they're just enemies uh, to the death you know so there needs to be this exchange and and, and us musicians and us travelers can be seen as as, as as messengers of of a message that uh, uh that human beings everywhere are good mm. you know so uh, i find it extremely important to uh not let politics get in the way of uh, uh of music and our ability to to create connection and to and uh, to build bridges Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like on the one hand, I think the idea that you're supporting a government by supporting its economy is a kind of it's quite it's quite a seductive one. You know, it's what it's an it's uh it's easy to to accept that as an argument. I mean, I think that the sort of counter to it is the kind of lesson of the fall of the Soviet Union, which was as much due to the influence of culture, I think, as or maybe not as much as anything else, but certainly it was a it was a significant factor in showing showing the citizens of the Soviet Union that there could be something different and better. And the more exposure that there was to that yeah. kind of these images of quote unquote freedom, like the more significant that became, and the you know the, the more the momentum built in that direction. Yeah. So next one, I, I read your well before I do any of these episodes, I any of these podcasts, I, I'll read a bunch of interviews, and the first 
interview I read with you today was your recent one with Beat Portal, which I thought was actually a really good interview, but it kind of skirted over mm-hmm. a, a fair bit of what you said, I think. So you made a comment about tax rates, which I was really intrigued me, but which was not developed upon at all. It was a, it was a one sentence kind of aside in the interview. So tell me what you think about tax generally and the obligation to pay it. I mean, we, we as a society are conditioned that uh, taxation is uh, a natural thing, that it's uh, something that has always been there. Um, whereas in reality, income tax is just a fairly recent thing. And my thought on taxation is it is a measurement of how free you are as a human being. Because, uh, and this is, this is not something I came up with myself, but I've read it and I really like that idea. If you're being taxed 100%, you are a slave because you don't get to keep any of your labor to yourself. Now, if I take the typical Western taxation system, let's say uh, you're in an upper income bracket, you make a say, you pay 40 like in Holland, you would pay 45% income tax. Then you pay uh, on everything you buy, you pay another 21% uh, value-added tax. Then you pay uh, a real estate tax. You pay uh, a city council tax. You pay uh, a bunch of tax on cigarettes, on, uh, on gasoline, on, uh, on, on alcohol. It adds up. To, in my case, at some point, I think the top tax rate that I calculated for myself was above 70%. In other words, I'm only less than 30% away from being a slave. And uh, the the, the counter-argument is always, yes, but look at what happens with that money. There's a lot of good things happening to uh, uh, the money, uh, being roads and schools, etc., are being built, etc. If that were true... And I was to see that the money was being put to good use, I'd have so much less of a problem with it. But uh, the contrary is the case. A lot of that money is, first of all, being wasted to repay debts to uh, banks who never had to work for that money, who printed it out of thin air and loaned it to governments, cities, people, etc., and, 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 and put us more and more into a debt trap to service these debts. So, uh, first of all, there's an injustice right there. Then a lot of the money is being just wasted by um, uh, the ineffectiveness and uh, incompetence of uh, ever-ballooning bureaucracies. Then a lot of the, the, the money goes into insane things like wars, bank bailouts. Um, then I look at education. Education used to be free when I was a kid. Now you keep paying more and more. If you want to go to university, there's no way your taxes pay for that. No, you are paying for that with your tuitions. So you, you, you see the taxes go up, but what you get for them gets less and less and less and is being wasted in a more meaningless way. And on, on top of that, the little that you get to keep gets devalued at an ever-increasing rate through money printing because inflation is, is just is just annihilating people's purchasing power. So so for me, the conclusion out of all of that is it is a duty of every citizen to 
uh, uh, lower the tax burden as much as possible to become a free person. You know, because you want to be able to, you want to be able to uh, to uh, be master over your own resources. Um, I think I'm a much better master of uh, the the resources that I create through my hard labor than any sort of government or any uh, you know a- any unelected bureaucrats with no skin in the game whatsoever. And and I'm being proven proven right. Look at the look at the household figures of uh, of, of countries. We're so deeply indebted. If that was a private company, it would have had to declare bankruptcy a long time ago. But because it's a country, it can go on and on and on. Okay, so let me push back on some of this a little, a little bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you gave this the standard counter argument, which is obviously, well, you know, where did the roads come from, etc. And your response to that in terms of the inefficient spending of, of tax receipts and yeah. the kind of well the the emergent forces of inflation which obviously have been low for for 40 years but have come back in a big way and are now here in the way that you described so the flip side to to that stuff is like there are things that really can only be achieved as part of a national government yes right so i mean you gave the example of war right and 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 yeah okay like on the face of it no one wants to spend money on war but in the face of aggression there has to be a capacity for defence. And that can only be done at a national level or a supranational level, in fact. And then there are other, there's other stuff like, you know, like many of the big technological advances of the past 50 years started off as government projects, you know, like so for you know, mm-hmm. taking like you know, from the development of the internet to go back to the Second World War, like, you know, atomic energy came out of the Manhattan Project and, and all that. There, there are lots of examples of this, right? And just to just to link this back to your comments at the top about the community aspects of Burning Man, I mean, I, I kind of take your overarching point that things have at a national level, particularly in the West, reached a point where credibility has been stretched, I think it's fair to say, with regards mm-hmm. to the way that government administrates its finances. But I mean, respond to a couple of those points, if, <laughs> if you can. Well, yes, um, I absolutely see a necessity for a state. And I also see a necessity for taxation. I, I'm simply against uh, excessive spending, useless spending, uh, unproductive spending, and uh, which also results in excessive taxation that we have today. So I think if we start at scratch with a lean and mean, uh, mean in the good sense of the word, uh, 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 government apparatus with no debt to be paid, but just start at scratch and we run a government uh, like a business where uh, people within the government have actual skin in the game, are re- being rewarded for uh, successes and being punished for shortcomings and failures. So there's a, a, there's a, a natural incentive to do the right thing uh, and to be uh, economic and frugal with uh, the resources that they're being given because the government does not produce anything by themselves. They have to take it from the productive class, us. Once you have that and uh, you no longer have a massive leech leeching productivity out of the system that never gets to be uh, reinvested into into the good stuff into education etc once you have a once you have created a system that isn't uh, uh, that is fair and lean and frugal every tax dollar 
that's being put into that system uh, will have much greater effect, will achieve much more with less taxation. And I'm not an expert of taxation systems, but I think we in, in, in such a world we could do without income tax and we could have uh, a sales tax. So basically what we do is we tax consumption, which is also a good thing because it uh, incentivizes us to also not overconsume, but be frugal with uh, consumption. It, uh, it incentivizes uh, saving and investing in the future. Uh, so if, if we could have a lean system and uh, we could do everything, uh, we could pay for everything necessary with uh, just a sales tax. Perfect. You wouldn't hear me complain. You know, I'm, I'm even if, if our income tax rate was at a reasonable uh, percentage, let's say our total tax burden was 30% and we'd be living in a society that didn't know hunger, that had every member of society uh, sheltered, uh, healthcare taken care of, world-class education taken care of. I wouldn't complain at all. But I know that so much of the money that we pay goes into useful uh, and, and downright harmful uh, uh, projects that uh, I don't want to be part of that. Okay. Relating to that, one of the themes that we've talked a little bit about in the show in recent weeks has been that inflation phenomena, which has, has re-emerged in the last year or so. And relating to that, the, well, what has been described by some people as the end of globalization or maybe the end of a globalization kind of expansionary era and really the question relates to how that will affect the dance scene in a global sense because i mean dance music has been really since very early on since the sort of early to mid 90s a kind of self-styled global village like a global collective and you know you can have a very similar experience at a party just about anywhere in the world or any major city in the world. And, you know, that's largely been fueled by the forces of globalization, which are not seen as being cool or sexy. And, you know, it's it's obviously a fashionable or has has always been a fashionable outlook to be against those things, but they have enabled the global dancing to be what it is. So tell me how you perceive those things affecting affecting what you do uh, on a kind of month to month basis because there's someone who travels a lot and is you know very much participating in that global scene like how do you what is your outlook about you know with regards to that stuff well first of all um uh the the, the problem with inflation and i i disagree with you a little bit it's that it's it's not just a problem for the last few years but Ever since we got off the gold standard in 71, um, uh, it's been slowly accumulating and, 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 and inflation compounds. So 2% every year, you know, it's after, after a while is a lot. And, and, and it's just that hockey stick, that curve of inflation is now accelerating uh, at such a rate that we're reaching the end of the system. But regardless of that, the problem with inflation is, is that it, it hurts the poor people first then it hurts the middle class, and at the end, it hurts everybody. And uh, what I'm seeing right now is, uh, clearly I see an erosion of the, uh, of the middle class 
all over the planet, which changes the nature of how parties are being financed. So where uh, a while back, uh, ticket sales were, you know, really everything. Now I can see that the most important source of income for many parties is selling uh, VIP packages and selling tables. So the, the, the upper 10% uh, ends up financing uh, a large portion of uh, uh, of the party, which of course changes the whole experience. We have uh, um, you go to Ibiza and you see massive VIP section. You go to a place like let's say Hai or Pasha, um, that you see how important uh, uh, the VIP areas and the ability to sell tables is to the to the uh, to the survival of these clubs. You know. And you see that everywhere. Even cool festivals uh, have more and more tables. I see it, and you know, uh, I see it in Tulum a lot. Uh, also, Tomorrowland. Uh, the, the VIP business is, is is absolutely essential now, which means that favors the type of artist who is able to attract the VIP crowd anywhere in the world, and. Uh, uh, that, that type of artist can live very well of that. Um, the fees for these artists just keep going up because uh, they have a very in-demand ability. That, that ability is, uh, uh, is more, more in demand than ever because it's so much harder to, 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 to make good money uh, the, the normal way, the traditional way, to simply selling tickets to the punter. The shadow side is, is I see uh, uh, how much more difficult it is becoming for clubs that are not assigning to the to the two tier society model, uh, but who just have more an egalitarian outlook and just sell tickets for them to make ends meet, uh, uh, which is a shame because a lot of the, the, the projects that I find most valuable are struggling. Like one of my favorite festivals, uh, Fusion Festival, they lost a lot of money this year, and they don't even, because their ticket prices aren't high. They sold out. The demand for tickets is huge. They sold out, but the rising costs everywhere, you know, uh, to to get all the infrastructure in to pay for you know electricity, water, PA, security, etc. The costs are rising so much that uh, it squeezes their, um, their their profit margin. And uh, I see it also in many clubs uh, around Europe that uh, it's, it's, it's getting so much harder for them to survive. So there's, there's going to have to be a moment of cleansing. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen this as well uh, in, in economic hard times that the traditional models break down. Uh, and you start at the very bottom with underground warehouse parties being put together by unknown artists who come up with completely new and interesting styles of music. So uh, inflation is ultimately going to lead to, uh, to a renaissance uh, and, 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 and reinvention of uh, new genres and uh, emergence of new artists, which I also think is, uh, in a way, is healthy. It's like a, it's like a forest fire. You get rid of the undergrowth uh, every few years, and that makes room for something new. And uh, uh, this can affect uh, established artists. You know, it might affect myself as well. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, it's it's absolutely possible, but that's just the way nature works. I what, what I find interesting as well is that 
in countries where inflation is already much worse than it is in uh, in, in Europe, like uh, you look at Argentina and uh, look at Lebanon, partying is one of the last refuges for people to have a good time and it's one of the last things they, they, they're willing to let go of. So uh, they are investing in a um, disproportionate uh, amount of their um, of their uh, monthly uh, allowance into partying. Yeah. Partying seems to be some of the most important things for people to spend money on. Yeah, I mean, it's often, it's often argued that the music industry or like this part of the music industry anyway is recession proof for that exact reason, right? And I think that was the the experience to a large extent of 2008. Like there was a, a real boom in the kind of dance scene generally between 2008 and 2012 and seemingly sort of with, with that kind of backdrop you know yeah i mean i'd be interesting how, how do you how do you see this 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 situation that we're in how do you see inflation affecting uh, our scene i mean i think it's 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 a really worrying pattern and i say a pattern i mean it's just it's it's something which i think um, I mean, okay, so just just to go back to what you said about how, you know, coming off the gold standard led to a, um, uh, yeah, a, a sort of cumulative effect of inflation. I mean, like there was certainly high inflation in the 70s, but the for, sort of 40 years from 81, 82 until now were like historically low rates of inflation, right? And yeah it's been it's been it's been creeping up you know i mean we you probably remember uh the 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 69 cent uh hamburger at mcdonald's right. oh yeah, yeah sure it's not so long ago it's now five bucks sure sure, sure. i mean i mean, the, I mean the, the real question is like whether wage growth and economic growth is keeping pace right and, and like the, the real problems are when you've got a rate of inflation which is significantly higher than both of those things right so yeah, yeah. um and and that's where we are today and that's where we're likely to be for i'm i'm you know i would guess at least the next three to five years maybe maybe longer you know probably not in a kind of linear way but i mean it's going to go up and down in that time but i think like we're going to be we're going to have a, a rate of inflation which outpaces you know those two other metrics i think for quite yes. a long time and that's got implications for for everything in the economy but i think particularly when you're thinking about venues and the kind of venues that put on the kind of parties that we want to play at which is to say the ones which you know have done their best to hold out against stuff like vip sections and table service and all that kind of stuff like those seem to me to be really vulnerable to this kind of stuff and you know, the the prospect of, you know, well, I mean, I, I mentioned in a recent podcast I did with Steffi that, you know, we've been living in a really fortunate era where it's been possible to make a great living playing underground shows, right? Playing underground music and underground shows. And I, it seems to me that, like, it's going to be extremely challenging for people who want to play underground music to make any kind of, well, certainly to get any kind of, anywhere near the kind of living that's been possible in the last 10 to 15 years. So it's 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 problematic. I mean, I talked about this to George Fitzgerald on the show and what a point he made was that it might, well, it may, it may have a sort of negative effect on, on the touring DJ, but that might give opportunities to local acts in the way that was hypothesized that might happen with the forces coming out of the pandemic. And that's a possibility too. But I mean, 
I mean, my counter to that would be, you know, if that's all you can do, you know, if all you can do is play your local city, then how do you grow as an artist? You know, so it's it's just all sorts of challenges, I think, that come, that come out of this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So... Next question. Okay, which one am I going to ask? There's, there's a couple. By the, by the way, just just a sidebar and related to this, you're the only musician I know who follows Doomberg on, on Twitter. I saw you retweeting a point they made about, about <laughs> nuclear power. But let's let's not get into the energy crisis. I think we've got that's just about covered that stuff with the, with the inflation issue. Okay, diversity riders. That's a nice thorny one to dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another another one that you kind of that was that was hinted at in your. Beatport interview, yes. and by the sound of things, you're skeptical about this as a general concept. Tell me what you think. Well, um, I think uh, diversity revolves around two opposing philosophies: equality of opportunity uh, versus equality of outcome. Yep. So um, I think. Uh, um, Equality of outcome means that there is an equal representation of uh, every diverse group that you can think of on any given rider. So, of course, we have uh, 49% men, 49% women. The rest is, would be uh, uh, other genders. Then you'd have, uh, if, if you take this seriously, you'd have to have, I don't know, 40% Asians in every rider. Um, 25% Africans and 18% Europeans or Caucasians. I don't know what the numbers are. I'm making the figures up. You can can go as crazy as you want with these numbers, but the result would be that uh, you... uh, It would be impossible to have the best artists entertaining the masses. What I'd much rather have is to remove any obstacles uh, for people to become an artist. So uh, make the education uh, knowledge necessary to become an artist, make that available to everyone. Uh, And and, and it quickly is becoming available to everyone because there's so much you can learn on YouTube. Uh, There's so many masterclasses by established artists out there that people can consume for free. I also feel that the stigmas that uh, uh, are and were really existing, for instance, against female artists, are really being eroded. Uh, I think that's a good that's a good thing. Uh, I also think that it's great that if you are an up up and coming woman, uh, or you are uh, an an up and coming uh, 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 homosexual artist, or you are. Uh, of any min- uh, other minority that uh, today there are more role models for you out there than ever before. You know, so we've made huge strides away from, uh, for instance, techno being a male white thing. It really no longer is. And I see that uh, a lot of the commercial success, the most commercial successful people in our business right now are women. You know, um, I look at Charlotte Veto, uh, Amelie Lance. They absolutely, with their numbers, they absolutely kill probably every male artist out there. You know, it's like this is is, is no contest. Uh, their popularity is is huge, and uh, and I and, and and I applaud that. What I want is uh, for everyone to have the opportunity to become an artist. 
But at the end of the day, I want everybody to earn their spot. To uh, because and, 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 and life, just like nature, is not fair. Some people simply have an advantage over others. You know, some people are being raised in a family in, in a family where the family infuses them with instills them with uh, the confidence necessary to pursue an artist's career, whereas other uh, families don't give you that confidence. Some people have uh, uh, won the, the lottery in the gene pool, which undoubtedly helps in creating a, a career because people love to look at beautiful people. Um, some people have, are born into uh, um, financial abundance and are able to pay their way into the top. That is the world. We, we can't change that. It's never going to change. But uh, uh, to give everyone a, a fair shot, And then from there to be able to make it on your own, I think this is uh, this is better than uh, than to regiment that. Oh yes, we need forty percent of this and thirty percent of that and then that, and then create some Frankenstein uh, uh, lineup that uh, leaves the people going to the party uh, unsatisfied. You know, at the end of the day, I'm an uh, I'm I'm a deep believer in art. the arts should be a meritocracy. Uh, and let the most talented artists be at the forefront. The, the, the problem with uh, uh, electronic music is, is that, of course, uh, it's not about artistic talent that determines whether we get to play somewhere in most cases. And it also, it, it, artistic quality is not the primary uh, determination factor how much money we make. Uh, it is our ability to sell tickets. So... Uh, It is in the nature. It's in the nature of things that we're being rewarded for our ability uh, to uh, get people through the door, and and not for uh, playing an amazing set. So amazing music is just one contributing factor, uh, but uh, to, to today is all about. Um, the, you have to have the whole marketing game nailed. I know artists uh, are investing huge amounts of money uh, into just social media presence, uh, having someone travel with them all the time to film them at the film them at the right moment when all the hands are in the air, uh, and 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 to sell that as a proof of concept for the next show on their social medias, buying uh, buying views, etc. It's, this is just part of the game, you know. Uh, the game constantly changes, but uh, there is a reality that um, this game is never going to be a totally level, level playing field. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the like financial advantage that some people enjoy because economic class is not ever something which really gets brought up with this diversity stuff. But there's no doubt that, you know, being born with lots of money in the family is a huge advantage with this kind of stuff. Yes. And you, we actually see this through all of the arts. Like, I mean, with acting, for example, like, you know, acting as a profession is absolutely dominated by people that come from upper middle class backgrounds. And I mean, that gets compl complained about a bit. We don't hear about it in music at all, but it's absolutely the same in music. Yeah. So... Okay, where were we? Okay, so I'm a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, right? And I listened to the Billy Corgan episode with Rogan from back, it's from ages ago, but I listened to it for the first time recently. And he was talking about, he talks about coming to terms with his position 
as essentially a legacy rock act. And you talk about the like the prospect of reaching that stage as a DJ. And it got me thinking that the the kind of perception or the expectations from the, the audience of a rock band, I think are are a bit different from what they expect from a DJ, just in terms of of age and of sort of demeanour. I think a lot of when well, a lot of the biggest DJs now are in their forties and fifties. And I think it's probably fair to say that DJing DJs generally get better with age in a way that is not true for rock bands. I mean, I think the, the, the reverse is definitely definitely true for rock bands. But but maybe that's because of what we expect from a rock band versus what we expect from a DJ and, and what the relative skill sets are. So how, I mean, like you, you mentioned, well, you, you said in that interview that you felt that being considered a legacy DJ, this is a quote, that you, to be considered a legacy DJ means you're no longer growing, I think, as an artist, essentially. So you're no, no longer developing your sound, I think is what you meant by that. So can you just expand on that a little bit? Yes. Well, um, first of all, I, th- I think that just because you're growing older as a DJ uh, does not mean automatically mean that you're getting better. Sure. I think to, to, be, get, you, 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 to, to be getting better, you n- need to never uh, rest on your laurels. You continuously need to get at work, hone your craft. It, it, it just to, to become a better producer, you still need to constantly be in the studio. You need to make the miles and you need to be able to not become set in your ways because this is a big danger. And I've, I've I noticed this about myself. Uh, once you find a, a couple of tricks that work, you keep repeating them and repeating them and repeating them. And at some point you reach a saturation point where people are no longer interested in that because they've already seen it a million times and they want something new. And I think what happens at that point determines whether you go down the legacy route, whether you basically you, you hold on to the crowd that also is not interested in changing, but wants to see your music as simply uh, as part of a certain uh, uh, era in their own lives and uh, which they every now and then want to revisit. So just to, just to give you an example, uh, I know this says, for instance, in, 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 in Progressive, you know, when uh, I, go, I go to a Progressive party uh, and I sometimes also play these Progressive gigs and I, I really love that scene because uh, people are just incredibly nice. The artists are just incredibly nice to each other uh, and it's a kind crowd, but it's also an older crowd. Uh, and um, then I often have these conversations. Hey, Patrice, you've done a global underground. I have the whole collection. And then they, they come and they want to see their acts from those early global undergrounds perform in very much the same way. And, uh, 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 and there's a lot of artists who basically deliver that product and they've, they've, they, 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 have, they have their followers, but the average age of these parties is very close to the age of the DJ himself. So you can see the audience growing older with their artists. Um, so uh, when you go to Stones concert now, the average age is probably close to 60 or something like that, you know? Um, right. I see the same trend when I, when, when I see older DJs uh, play, uh, especially the ones who haven't try to keep up to date, but who just stayed within their sound or within their niche. 
um, yeah, it almost feels good to be the youngest kid in the room, you know, <laughs> once because, <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, it's, 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 it's the same trend. Uh, and for me personally, it, it, it means to be at that, in that place means I am as an artist, just, I'm just repeating myself. So, uh, I'm no longer an artist. I'm an, I'm an act, I'm a product. But I'm not innovating anymore. I'm just uh, I'm, I'm I'm just rehashing. You know, it's as though Andy Warhol would just uh, get out his old silk screens and just keep making more of what he's already made. Yeah. And and, and I don't want I don't want to be in this place because of course it's I find it boring. What fascinates me about electronic music, about techno, is the unknown. Is this this the stuff that I don't understand? Uh, that uh, uh, you know others create I love I love to encounter music uh, and art that uh, breaks open my set ways that uh, makes me see the world in different ways and uh, I would like to give um, or attempting or, um, to, 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 to give people uh, a similar experience when uh, uh, when when they come uh, and hear me and it's fucking hard to do that because you constantly need to be willing to fail it's not it's not easy when you know uh, a warm embrace and a reward is waiting for you on uh, if you just keep doing what you're doing yep you know so it's uh it's it's counterintuitive and it's uncomfortable to 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 be continuously looking for something new and i think very few legacy or very few older artists are continuously able to to reinvent themselves. That's why I, I love. That's what I love about, uh, for instance, Picasso, who never stood still, who successfully reinvented himself, reinvented his style six, seven times throughout his career, and always stayed prolific. I mean, for me, that's just uh, unbelievable, unfathomable, and so admirable. It's such a for me, it's such an inspiration to see someone to continuously improve because. If you do that throughout a lifetime, you can get extremely far. I'm not. I'm not sure. Is 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 painting and and art in general does that play a role for you as well? I mean, it's the observation that you have to be willing to fail absolutely resonates. And like failing as a DJ is an extraordinarily painful experience, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's, you're really at the at the bleeding edge of like creativity there right because when you come in particularly i mean everyone has a bad show and everyone has a you know has a show where the, the vibe's not right or whatever but that's different to coming in with something where you're playing you're developing a different style over over a certain amount of time and then there'll be a point at which you decide to push it or whether you're just in the you know you're in a certain mood and and you go somewhere with your set which is a development and when that doesn't work it's absolutely soul destroyed because people just vote with their feet right i mean everyone yes, <laughs> every, every yes, dj has cleared yeah. a dance floor but when you clear a dance floor with something which is you know your absolute artistic expression then that is a painful process extraordinarily painful d d i mean d djing is such a confrontation uh, with your own ego uh, it's such a mirror and when I'm playing, I'm continuously uh, um, observing myself. And I mean, I've been DJing for 28 years and I still have so little control over what happens inside of me. Right. 
and uh, and then and, and then uh, in a weak moment I see myself making the the safe choice and to play that drum roll and get the hands in the air <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's okay and, and and it's okay but I deep down inside I know I've chickened out you know and uh, uh, I, uh, I I also catch myself so much to not look at the good but look at the one bad thing you know mm. I don't see the thousand people having a good time no I see the five people turning around at the uh, at the back of the dance floor and leaving the leaving the room and, <laughs> and, and the room slow slowly getting emptier and oh. me worrying about that you know yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so but that's also what I love about uh, DJing it's a it's a lifelong journey of uh, of self-discovery and, 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 and mental uh, fortification. Yeah, so so related to this then, let me ask you the DJing question. So, I mean, a quote that I pulled out, previous quote of yours was that, I see this profession simply as a service, like a baker baking bread for his neighbourhood. And so the DJing question obviously is, is DJing art? I mean, that, that quote would suggest that you would say no to that, but what is your answer to that DJing question? Um... So just just to just to uh, explain that quote uh, a little bit better, um, I see DJing as a service because because I want to take the ego out uh, out of the equation. This, this this frame of mind of I'm the same as the barman, I'm the same as the sound guy, and I'm the same as the guy uh, doing the security. Um, we're all in it together. We're a team trying to make something happen together. That for me takes away the pressure of, oh, what do they think about me? Uh, I need to perform now, uh, all eyes are on me. Uh, and it helps me perform in a better way. And uh, I, it's also just keeps my feet on the ground. And uh, life is so much better if you're, if, if you're not constantly beholden to your ego, but if you, you know, if you show a little bit of humbleness, because we all know at the end of the weekend, the bank account is growing in unreasonable ways compared to someone who is doing actual hard manual labor in the factory. You know, what we, we can we do we, we get rewarded with uh, attention. We get rewarded with uh, an interesting lifestyle. We get rewarded with financial means that uh, that are completely disproportionate to what the, the average person uh, goes through. And that can go through to a head really easily. So I think it's uh, it's just healthy to, to you know to dim it a little bit, to tone it down a little bit, and uh, and to 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 exercise a little bit of humility. As to the question whether a DJing is art or not, I could ask the baker the same uh, question: Is baking bread uh, art? I think that is really in the eye of the beholder. Mm. Uh, what is art to one person? It's 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 not so much what happens inside the creator, but it's what happens inside of the recipient. What determines whether something is art? If if what I told what I said earlier, if 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 if, some, if an experience helps me to see the world in different ways, and it uh, breaks open uh, those uh, those established pathways and it creates new connections. If that happens, whether I'm um, uh, eating a slice of bread or I'm listening to a DJ, that is art. 
But if the person next to me has eaten that bread a million times because he, this this baker is uh, is his high school friend and they've basically been living together uh, uh, and he's been eating that bread all the time, the bread is no longer art. And the same probably applies to um, a DJ set, certainly also my DJ set. Someone's very familiar with what I do and is, knows my tricks and... Uh, 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 um, and, and he knows me so well that he almost knows what the next record is going to be. It might not be art. Certainly someone who doesn't like my music. You know, there's more people don't like my music than do not like my music. That's just, that's just normal, you know. Yeah. Uh, to them, this, it's, it's not art, it's noise. You know, if I ask my grandmother, uh, <laughs> do you think this is art? It's like, well, she said, no, I love you, my, you know, but uh, it's, uh, to, <laughs> to me, this is just noise. Can you please turn this down? So, yeah, it's totally in the eye of the recipient. I don't know. How do you feel about this? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely depends on, on the definition. And if that is the definition, then, then I agree with you completely. I mean, there's an alternative definition of art, which is much more about the process itself and the intention of the person doing whatever it is, which is either going to be judged as art or not, which is obviously looking at it from the complete, you know, the, the opposite way. And I think when people ask that question, they expect an answer from that side, you know, so they, they, they want to know whether the person is an artist, which is much more of a sort of value judgment. I guess, and it's much more, and it, and it, just to go back to what you were saying about the the kind of <laughs> the entanglement of of the ego with the DJ set and people's expectations of that now, because obviously, I mean, DJing has become such a a kind of celebrity thing, and it is almost equivalent to being a rock star in some in the eyes of quite a lot of the audience I think certainly in the perception of you know the lifestyle and the supposed kind of glamour that goes with it and of course like if you look behind the curtain like the, the, the relative amounts of glamour for both being a rock star and being a DJ are both actually relatively you know probably quite low in terms of like what, what they actually do in a, on a day-to-day -day basis yes, right? yes yes um, yes yes but I think that um I've asked that question to quite a few people now I did I didn't start out the podcast asking it every time but I've, I've asked asked it to quite a few people and the general consensus seems to be like it depends which obviously is like the worst <laughs> worst answer possible to that question yeah. but i think like i mean i mean i think if you are if you're looking at it from the perspective of is the person an artist then it does completely depend on the way you approach it and i think the same is true for any supposed art form right so there's like you know there'll be yeah someone who plays the piano and you know does their best to kind of hack their way through fair release and various other you know sort of classics and is that art you know probably not but then there'll be someone else who is able to give you know a genuinely distinctive interpretation of a classic piece which maybe, maybe that does qualify as yes, art yes so uh, yeah I, th I think there's no there's no easy answer to this question essentially i i i, I, I feel art uh, should be, I mean, intention is important. Yeah. But if you don't, if you don't deliver. Yeah. If you did, if you if you intend to create a reaction but fall short, is that art? Is it still art? Sure. Because uh, I th I think you have you have to be able to deliver. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, because if you don't deliver, then it's it's really just a piece of self indulgence, right? I mean, if if, yes. if if what you're creating is of no value to anyone, then well, that tells its own story. Yeah, that's why I'm, that's why I'm thinking it's uh, uh, it's kind of arrogant to proclaim proclaim for yourself that what I do is art. You know? It's like I think it's like being an entrepreneur. Like you shouldn't really you say you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Like anyway, okay. There's a last area I want to ask you about, which relates to the scene in Amsterdam. So one of the things we've been trying to do with this show is is kind of chronicle the development of scenes in different places. And my previous episode with Steffi, which I referred to before, we touched on it, but I was unable to get too much detail out of her, unfortunately. So you've obviously been a resident at some high profile clubs in Amsterdam and you I'm, I'm fairly sure you moved there as a teenager is that correct yeah I was 19 when I moved there right so you had your few the formative musical experiences presumably then in the city yeah, yeah so can yeah, you yeah. can you tell me a little bit about okay so let, let's go from from when you first moved there and when you first started going out to clubs can you tell me like what was it well when was that for a start and then and what was it like as a general kind of scene a music scene for this kind of stuff i moved there in 1996 um, when i was 19 i'm now 46 so it's uh like yeah yeah it's a long time ago for me i, I mean i was really kind of like little more than a bedroom dj at the time and that wouldn't that wasn't going to change for many years that i lived in amsterdam until the mid 2000s uh so i spent many years in amsterdam just looking in from the outside mm. and probably like uh you've must have experienced as well you're an up-and-comer you uh always have uh, a bag full of uh tapes or mixed cds later on and uh, uh you uh go to record shops you go to uh, dj agencies hoping for them uh, club owners hoping for them to listen to your shit and uh, and to book you and of course that rarely ever worked so I was I was much more of a consumer slash bar DJ. Mm. Uh, for, fortunately, there was a, a lot of that as well. So like, uh, you, not only did you have uh, a, a really healthy amount of clubs in Amsterdam at the time, um, you had um, places like the It, uh, the Escape, uh, the Roxy. The Roxy is probably the most known of the uh, the Amsterdam clubs. I think the Roxy is probably the natural predecessor of the lineage that uh, later became Club 11 and that continued with Trow. So um, I was a consumer uh, and the, the, the DJs that really influenced me at the time, uh, um, most of all was probably Dimitri. Uh, what I loved about Dimitri was he, he was one of those DJs that was so technically proficient and so uh, creative in his way of DJing that uh, you simply couldn't tell what he was doing, you know? And, and, and the magic for me, music is always when I hear something and I don't know how it's made, mm. you know? I love, I love that. I love that when there's, there's a mystery to it, you know? And, and to, to circle back to the previous question as DJing art, if you take your average DJ from today who plays mostly uh, melodic techno top 100 records, 
that's not art because there's no mystery to it. You know, every, you know how everything happened. You know how this music was created. You know how these DJ sets were created. Uh, there's, 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 just, there's, just, there's just no secrecy. Um, it's probably I know probably easier how this 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 music was made than how the the bread was made around the corner. Yeah, sure. So uh, my, my 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 local baker to me is probably more of a mystery and more of an artist than uh, than, than than your average uh, uh, melodic techno DJ nowadays would be. But um, to get back, so Dimitri was one of those mystery guys uh, that uh, just totally fascinated me. Other guys were. Um, was a, there was a girl, her name was Carline. She was the local DJ at the Matza, and she had this wonderfully elegant, groovy style of DJing. And, and, and that to me was always something that I love uh, about techno. To me, techno has to be groovy because groove is sexual. Music has to be, for me, to, 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 to really enjoy music, uh, dance music, I love it to be sexual. It's, it's, it's not a must. There's also great asexual music. For instance, James Holden, to me, is completely asexual, <laughs> right. but it's fant fantastically brainy, beautiful, beautiful music. But uh, um, yeah, Colin was one of those uh, just really groovy, fluent DJs. And, uh, you know, this is kind of the style that I liked. Um, as a DJ myself, uh, I really learned a lot playing... In, in bars, playing all night long to an audience that mostly was indifferent at best or unreceptive to what I was doing. And uh, it, it kind of forges you, you, the character to bike out in the rain with two heavy crates of records to go play for 50, for 50 euros uh, a night uh, to no applause whatsoever and to go home. But uh, at the end of the day, you learned a little bit that somewhere between 10 p.m. and 10.30, you had them for 30 minutes playing certain records. And then you understood, okay, I did that and that. And I know why those people were dancing at that moment. And that's how you learn to read the dance floor. I think uh, one of the most difficult to learn skills is how to read the dance floor. And nothing this is something that can only be learned with uh, exposure, with experience. I mean, I'm sure you, you, I don't know what your history is as a DJ, but those little gigs, those, uh, uh, those non-headline sets where you're just standing for 90 minutes and hammering uh, an already primed audience with, uh, uh, with the big records, those sets you learn very little. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, yeah, you learn nothing yeah, from that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, when you, when you, when you, you know, uh, those, uh, those early residencies and at some point in the mid 2000s, I, uh, I was lucky to become a resident at Club 11 and later at trial. And being a resident means you warm up a lot. And to build a room from zero to a few hundred people, you learn a lot. Yeah. Um, and, yeah I'm super grateful for that experience because now I feel... Uh, you can put me as a teacher, you can put me into any situation and uh, I might not be uh, the perfect choice for every situation, but I will hold my own in nearly every situation. I will know what to do. So uh, those formative years, uh, 
that uh, started with bars and then it continued uh, with residencies and then slowly I started producing as well in the mid 2000s. Okay, let, let me let me stop you there. Let me ask you about Club 11 residency. I never went to that yes. venue. So tell me tell me a bit about that as a as an institution because you as you said it's a kind of part of the kind of lineage of Amsterdam clubs. So yeah, tell me about it. So Club 11 uh, was uh, um, a repurposed uh, uh, 11 story building of uh, uh, the, the used to be a post office and they basically uh, didn't have a purpose for the building for a few years so they filled it with culture they uh, put uh, uh, a modern art museum of Amsterdam in there the Stedelijk Museum and on the top floor the 11th floor they put uh, uh, they put in a, a restaurant and a club and that place was called 11 uh, the beautiful thing about Eleven, uh, the setup was in such a way that um, it had uh, twelve large video screens on on on, on the walls uh, on the left and on six on the left and six on the right wall. So it was a beautiful canvas for VJs to do their thing. So Club Eleven was um, a fusion of uh, 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 a VJ club and a DJ club. Combine that with uh, the notorious lack of big funds. The project was never really well financed, so a lot had to be done uh, improvising. So basically what they did is instead of buying uh, uh, um, uh, expensive uh, lighting, uh, they built their own. So we had... um, one of the guys who uh, was basically one of the godfathers of the the, 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 the Dutch lighting scene. Uh, his name is Maeus van Dis. Uh, Maeus would uh, uh, later also build the, the lighting for uh, Trau. You've seen that for sure. The the the, the TL. Um, I don't know how you call them. Are they called, uh, the neon lights that were that were hanging and and, and, and all kinds of uh, uh, almost like. Uh, like an installation sculpture, they were hanging on the dance floor in, in different ways. Every night they changed something. Uh, anyway, he, he would build light from scratch. And that started a whole school of, uh, uh, a new school of thought, how to think about club lighting. And I think Amsterdam, and you can still see that in the way festival lighting is done in Amsterdam, has a very unique way of, uh, of, of of thinking about lighting. So I think Club 11 was the birthplace of that uh, club lighting movement. And I think this is probably the most important legacy of the club, more so than the music. Uh, I was playing there. Uh, I had a night with uh, my DJ partner, Nuno Dos Santos, who's also one of my very best friends to this day. I was called 360. And uh, uh, it was a monthly residency. We invited acts like Mode Selector, James Holden, but also Lawrence. Basically, didn't really have any filter. We just invited people that we liked and who we felt were not represented by other nights. The, 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 in, in the mid 2000s, the, the big music directions were minimal. And uh, that sort of indie, Ed Banger type of uh, yeah, yeah. sound. 
So and, and we 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 found our own niche, and uh, I think that's where I really became a decent DJ for the first time. So how often were you playing there? Probably once or twice a month. Yeah. Uh, not too often, but uh, you know. The, that's a good amount, though. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And since I was starting to produce at that time, I also started getting gigs elsewhere a little bit. It was you know shy beginnings. Um, that club ran for a few years, and then at some point uh, they had to tore down. They wanted to tear, tear down the building, and uh, now they built the public library there and the new Amsterdam Conservatory. So this whole this whole area has been repurposed, and it's you know it looks beautiful, but uh, the club's gone, unfortunately. And then uh, the part of the uh, Eleven Core crew decided to find a new project. And that project became, I think, two years later, uh, became Trow. Trow opened two years later. And were you a, were you a resident there from, from the beginning? Yes, start to finish. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I loved that place. I really did. I didn't didn't get to play there as much as I would have liked, to be honest. But I mean, I played there. No, played there. no, no, but nobody did. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> well, well, wanted maybe, to play maybe more you than did, they did. Like... <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, no, I still, I still, I would have loved to play more there because I... Uh, First of all, I mean, it's my favorite club in Amsterdam ever. Yeah, so for people who didn't get to go, can you describe it? Yes, um, it was an old printing factory. So for, so for if you've ever been to Printworks, uh, it f- the top floor feels like a shrunk down version of Printworks. So the top floor fits about, I think, roughly 1,000 people. Same concept uh, as in 11. The front was... Um, was a club and the backside was uh, a restaurant. As the night progresses, uh, the restaurant made way for the club as well. So the, the, the room just got bigger. And then um, it also had a basement, which was almost the same size, but it felt rougher. It was just you know, concrete beams and, uh, and no windows. And uh, uh, they called it the Verdieping, which means the... Uh, the, well, basically, basically, kind of like the basement. Um, yeah. And what I love about Amsterdam, uh, about Trau, first of all, I think Trau was one of the few clubs ever uh, in, in, in Amsterdam, uh, in, in the Netherlands, that had world-class caliber, that could measure up against Fabric and Burkhine and, uh, and, and places like that. What I loved about Trau is it was a happy place. So where, for instance... Clubbing in Berkheim is very is, is more serious. Right. You know, it starts with the experience at the at, at the door, and it's uh, it's it's serious business. Amsterdam was uh, Trouw Amsterdam was always uh, flirty and, and 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 hedonistic in a more playful way. It was less uh, sexualized than than Berkheim. It was less kinky. Uh, it, it it felt more approachable. You know. But it was like, it's always, you know, I just love that place because it was so, it was so happy and so uh, silly in a way. Uh, yet the parties were full on. You had, uh, it was also a great concert venue. I saw some beautiful concerts in there. I remember I saw Nicholas Yar for the first time when he was, you know, he played for the club for like 
700 euros fee <laughs> and blew everyone away and then that was just kind of the starting point of his career i saw i saw phoenix a french band and there or white white is boy alive and it was just amazing concerts uh saw some legendary dj sets i saw mind-blowing james holden show saw donato dozzy just uh, take us into the deep end right. and uh uh yeah and also that club was the first time where I also had a solo residency uh, called Black Magic. And for me, it was really important to also learn to, you know, fend for myself, to be a DJ on my own and uh, emancipate myself from, 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 you know, hiding behind the DJ partner, but just, you know, just being, uh, being fully my own man. And I learned a lot at that place. Yeah, and that ran until early 2014. And uh, after that, I kind of fell in a little hole. Residency gone, no money coming in, no gigs coming in. And it forced me to really reinvent myself to, you know, uh, to examine if I really want to be part of the music scene, what am I missing? And uh, that, that was, a, I think, a really valuable time. And uh, at that time, I made a decision. I need to find a niche and I need to work that niche uh, with uh, dedication. And my niche was to create records that are like bangers that, uh, you know. Yeah, that's always a good approach, I find, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and I think it's an approach that nowadays is almost less effective because it feels like every record is, uh, like, is, 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 is trying to be a banger. And I think you almost want to find the opposite end, something that makes people... Well, it's, it's funny that because I think it's in some ways that reflects the way people are approaching DJing now. So I think a lot of DJ sets yeah. these days are just 100% bangers, right? So I think the two things are kind of reinforcing each other. Yeah, and I, and I, and I think that uh, the only emotion most DJs are seeking right now is ecstasy. Right. It's that feeling of hands in the air, whereas if human beings are capable of feeling such a broader range of emotions and the niche is for me right now is to be catering to that range of emotions to to give people uh, just a more uh, a more uh, varied uh, set of uh, feelings on the dance floor i mean yeah absolutely so where do you i mean this is the last couple of things i'm going to ask you about where do you Okay, so just in the context of what we've what we just said about how people are approaching DJ now, and and to be honest, like I mean, to be more to look at this more charitably, I think perhaps like the context of coming out of a, a kind of two years of pandemic maybe informs that to an extent, and I think having a relatively inexperienced crowd going to clubs that that is to say, you know, young people who weren't who missed out on two years of going out and are coming into clubs a, a bit older than they might have done with um, what yeah, I, I've used the term cultural baggage before <laughs> on the show. And I think maybe that's a, a good way of describing like, you know, people who are kind of like essentially kind of noobs, you know, coming, coming into a kind of club situation. Yeah. But mm -hmm. how do you see like music developing? Cause I mean, we've got this like situation now where super hard techno is really, really popular and general kind of like tempos have gone up a lot. 
And, you know, what that says about creativity in production, I think is, a you know, it's sort of, well, I feel sort of slightly ambivalent about what that might be. So t- tell me about how you see music progressing over the next few years. I mean, just specifically music as opposed to, you know, the scenes. Oh, this, is, this is very difficult, uh, you know, because yeah, I, I'm not clairvoyant. I, sure. I can tell you what I see, what I see right now. I see... Yes, I agree. There's a techno scene which is getting faster and more aggressive and, and in a way also more playful. And, uh, and you can see that a lot of the uh, ideas from the uh, early 90s and mid 90s are being recycled by a generation that has never lived through those times. And to them, that, that, that those ideas are new and they're, they're turning them into their own thing. And I also feel that DJing itself, that uh, blending records into each other is uh, completely, and I mean that in the most positive way possible, uh, disrespected by that young generation. (laughs) They cut and mix and match and change tempos and everything. And it's amazing because, uh, you know, it it, it would be sad if they did the same thing as the the generations before them. They have to to own their own style. I see that and I think because the general uh, societal climate is becoming uh, harder that this music matches that climate really well. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you see like uh, a type of music um, that is getting slower. So, uh, and I'm thinking about that uh, garbage festival, uh, Berlin, Kata Blau, um, sort of sound that is being represented by DJs like uh, Mira and uh, um, Khaleesi and Sarah Kreis and uh, uh, but also Acid Pauli, Nico Stoyan uh, uh, so, 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 so that area uh, where the music is being pitched down and I find there's also a lot of interesting stuff happening what they do is they take 120 BPM. So it started off with kind of like this Tulum sound, basically, which is mostly appropriating, you know, world music and uh, putting a, you know, a gentle donk on that. <laughs> um, but now they're taking like more synthetic electronic sounds, t- t- techno records, and pitching them down to minus 16 and making them, you know, uh, and, and turning it into something that I think is sounds more menacing and, uh, and, and, and dark and, 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 and sexy. So there's something hap- interesting happening there. Then there's a third streaming that I would consider is more, let's say, uh, the, uh, the melodic techno, the afterlife sound, which is uh, also massive. And I think that sound and, and the afterlife parties in particular are actually evolving to something away from the dance floor. Really? I find afterlife to be becoming something more of a audio visual performance where the visual aspect and the uh, Instagram ability is becoming a more and more important part of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the concept and the aspect of closing your eyes and dancing and getting lost in the trance is becoming less of a less important. So many of these records have, long long breaks and then where everything stands still but you create this drama moment and then you start the visual and something magical happens and the phone comes out 
And uh, uh, yeah, I think it's like, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's almost like, I could imagine it's more like Cirque du Soleil. Right, right. You know? yeah, Where yeah. You, you, look, you look at something and what uh, the, 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 uh, the, the desired reaction is something like, wow. You know? It's really interesting putting it in that term, those terms, actually, like comparing it to something like Cirque du Soleil, because that really makes sense. And I think like the way, I mean, I mean to the extent to which that kind of stuff rubs people out the wrong way, are viewing it very much in the terms of like, oh, why isn't everything in a, in a dark club, you know? <laughs> and it's yeah, just yeah. not, that's just not what it is. It's, a, it's an unfair comparison, probably, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. There's a, there's a market for it. Oh, for sure. And what 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 fascinates me about uh, afterlife as a concept is how how well they understand uh, human psychology, how well they make use of the human need to wanting to belong to something bigger, and and and, and how well they interweave marketing with uh, with, uh, with with their product. Yeah. It's a, uh, uh, I mean, the the master salesman, master salesman, really. The, the the way they sell is just, uh, I find it uh, incredibly fascinating, and an even better example than uh, than the circular for me for me is Apple, the way Apple used to sell their products right, with right. these conferences, and they turn the consumer into the ambassador, ambassador of uh, of uh, of the brand. And I see this as well with Afterlife, how so many party people are being are becoming ambassadors of Afterlife. So it's not only that uh, because of the impressive visuality of the performances, so you see packed crowds everywhere, and you see these beautiful visuals, and they they, under, they understand how how to interweave uh, visual art with with music. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's so much purpose behind that. It's, uh, and it's so effective. It's incredible. Uh, so uh, how they create this product that people want to capture with their phone and that they want to share. And through sharing that, they create this snowball effect that makes the product even bigger and, and, and even bigger. And it's just, you know, it's like this, uh, this, is, this is true virality. Yep. And it's... And, it, and, and in a way, it's beautiful. And in another way, it's also scary to see this because uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's so manipulative in a way. Well, it's not what you'd call the spirit of rave, is it? No, no, <laughs> but, but it, it, is, it is such an uh, accurate reflection of society today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a reason that it resonates so much with people, you know, because of... You yeah, know. yeah. And... and, and, and Society, uh, even music, is becoming a visual, a more and more visual society. And uh, uh, I think if you want to, uh, as an artist today, uh, and, and not to underestimate a uh, route to success is to nail down the visual aspect of your uh, brand or persona or whatever. And I see that uh, the artists and brands that understand that best are certainly commercially more successful than the ones who neglect, neglect that fact. Yeah. So um, I think uh, these are the, 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 the mainstreams that I see right now. But what happens in the nooks and crannies 
I don't know, because I, I still think that the music is going to continue to fracture more and more into niche. Uh, I personally believe that um, participation is going to play a bigger role. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a believer that people want to not just be consumers, but that they want to participate more and that concepts who involve uh, 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 people in a, in, in a way that is uh, more than just that where, where basically communication is bi-directional and not just unidirectional where uh, you, they don't just being fed the gospel by the DJ or by the artist but where there's also a way for the crowd to talk back and to influence what's happening I think there's a huge area, there's a huge area of opportunity right there and I think a lot will happen in that area yeah okay well listen man this has been really great really enjoyed this i was looking forward to it and it has not disappointed so yeah thank you so much for doing it it's been been great well it was an absolute pleasure you're asking also asking the right question so it makes it so much more easy for me to you know open up yeah that was patrice balmel and as i mentioned at the top that was exactly the kind of conversation i was hoping to have when I started this podcast. We've had a pretty wide range of discussions on here, some focusing really squarely on music and others getting into sort of wider topics. And while I do love talking about music, it's the wider ones that I think I enjoy the most. So it was great to be able to dig into some meaty stuff with Patrice. He said some things which, uh, you know, he's got his opinions. And I have to say, I do fall on the similar side of a line to him on most stuff. But I mean, he's he's articulating things which are not what you're supposed to articulate. Many people anyway would say that. And, you know, that's fine. Absolutely fine. I think it's great to have a diversity of opinion, plurality of opinion on various things. And I think particularly, you know, with stuff like diversity riders, this is a discussion that needs to be had. I think. And I think the kind of presenting of it as a fait accompli is just, um, I don't think it helps. I've said this on previous episodes. And in fact, last week I said I was never going to talk about this again. So let's, let's, <laughs> let's not talk about it. I wasn't planning on talking to Patrice about Burning Man. That was something that came up by the by. And I mentioned, well, maybe I didn't mention, I mentioned last week, I think, that I was reading a book about the KLF by John Higgs. I finished that book recently. It was great. But in it, he talks about the origin of Burning Man, which I did sort of refer to in the conversation. So the kind of Dadaist temporary autonomous zone thing. And actually it came out of Burning Wicker Man, I believe, which is where the term Burning Man comes from. And they, I think they were doing it in, in California and then had to move it to the desert after they had some you know, run-ins with the authorities. I think that's the kind of origin story of Burning Man. But the kind of Dadaist, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm probably not. But, you know, it comes from the it comes from the Cabaret Voltaire thing in Zurich during the First World War and was a yeah pretty interesting kind of artistic phenomenon. It's worth digging into that a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's some very interesting stuff came out of it, including that Dadaist philosophy artistic kind of philosophy which gave birth to lots of other things and the klf story is kind of of that lineage anyway i would recommend the book certainly i'll stick a link to it in the show notes 
But yeah, Burning Man is something. In fact, I talked about it to Chris Leaving as well, didn't I? You know, I kind of, I feel like I've missed the boat with it, but but maybe that's not true. Maybe maybe it is still worth going to. My interest was certainly piqued by what Patrice was saying about it. So yeah, maybe something to think about for next year. Anyway, if you want to support us in what we're doing here, we'd be extraordinarily grateful. You can do so via Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's two tiers, solidarity tier, which gets you obviously the peace of mind that you're supporting great content, but also there's bonus stuff that goes up there pretty regularly. So it's pretty much at least once a week. There's a, a bonus mix or a podcast, speaking podcast or some other stuff. And then there's a the musicality tier, which is a little bit more expensive that basically gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. So everything we release a few weeks ahead of time in high quality download formats. And there's also bonus stuff that goes on there too. Like I stuck a unreleased SCB track up there recently, for example. So yeah, we'd be extremely happy if you found it in the kindness of your heart to do that. If you can't or don't want to, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this, hit that five-star button. Follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes to that. It contains all the music or most of the music anyway that we talk about on the show, plus all the episodes. And if you want to say anything, then join us in the Discord. One other benefit of the Patreon actually is that there is a private area of a Discord for patrons only, which contains a work in progress feedback channel, which I have been asked about by someone who wasn't a patron. And unfortunately I had to say, well, yeah, you've got to sign up, unfortunately. But you get that from the for the lowest or for all the tiers of the Patreon, you get into that. So if you want me to listen to your music and give you constructive feedback, and there's a whole bunch of people on there who are giving constructive feedback additionally to me, and everyone's really nice, then you can get into it via the Patreon. And it is super cheap. Like the, the basic tier is like, a yeah, it's like five bucks a month. So yeah, that's really cheap, I think. Anyway, thanks for listening. This has been a great episode. I will see you back here, same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Not a diving podcast. Let's go, wow.